0: Welcome everyone, I'm Sally. I'm John, we are True Crime Investigators UK. John was a police officer serving for 30 years and most of those years he was a detective.
1: Sally was a police officer before
0: retraining as a lawyer to practise criminal law. And now we may be retired, but we still review and investigate cases of interest and bring them to you through this podcast.
1: For additional resources, you can visit our website
0: truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk And please remember to follow the show on your podcast app and that way you'll be notified of all the new episodes. This is episode two of The Old Man and Me, the Tony Spencer story, told in the words of his son, Jason.
1: On the last episode, we heard from one of Tony's ex-wives a couple of his friends, and Jason talked about a sloppy bank robbery that saw his dad sentenced to 10 years in prison.
0: Jason was very young, just seven years old at the time. And as his dad's criminal activities have been hidden from him, he's told that his dad's gone away to study at college. But as the years pass by and he visits the prison, Jason starts to put two and two together.
2: It doesn't happen for a while, it's like a drip drip effect. You get these things you hear about on visits where people refer to old events Oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't know about that one. And then when you are at home, relatives talk about other old events. Do you remember the time when, you know, so and so there was a gun found in his wardrobe, or there was those guns found under the steps? And you think, well, I didn't know about that, and I didn't know about that. And of course, you eavesdrop a great deal by that. But you get to ten or eleven, especially when something like this has happened. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You start putting, You haven't got all the pieces. You realise there's some fascinating pieces here that I knew nothing about. So as well as being this businessman, he's also a villain as well. And all these friends of his, they're very well known villains in the city. You start to realise, and a lot of those have been to prison also. And the all run businesses like him, except he seems to be the bigger fish. And he's talked about in those sort of terms as well that he kind of got too big or too obvious, or they were after him. The police were after him. He was a target. And they've been after him a long time. And you think, well, why were you after them? Well, apparently there might have been other robbers, you know. You ever notice how his furniture shops were all named after banks? Mm. Uh, so you start piecing it all together. And, and that's you realize, that drip, 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 isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've got a complicated father mm. there. And then you start thinking, well, all these things can't all be, possibly be true. There's too much for one person. And I was raised with him. I know he was at work every day. When could he have done all this? It can't all be true. So then you start having to kind of reconstruct him, really, I suppose, or start adding to your picture of him. This might be true. This is true. Actually, I did hear about this. This probably is true. This one. I mean, I remember like we used to change number plates on cars, and these little. And you start questioning, well, what was he doing that for? There was a shop which had all his windows put through. And my mum told me, oh, well, they did your dad over on a deal, and he he put the windows. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? never, never, Never can't imagine him doing anything like that. But she told me, so that was true. So you start figuring out what's true, what isn't, and what might be, and then you start questioning what sort of person he is. Because he's it's, it's the same old dad, but there's just this side to him you just didn't know was there.
0: What kind of effect does that 10-year sentence have on you and your brother and your sister and, and your mum?
2: Initially, your your attitude is, right, we're going to carry on as we are. You don't appreciate money and how, how much that a role it plays, but we're going to carry on as we are, and he'll be out in, he's telling us five years, which it won't be. But we figure we can do this five years. I do anyway. But it becomes obvious as the months pass, this is more difficult than what you think because you don't have the money coming in anymore now. And you start being short of everything and not wanting to ask for things because you realise it's creating a strain. And you go to the visits and you realise when you first go on visits, people really want to go and see him. But once they've been once, they're not so keen to go again. And people don't want to do favours because they, a lot, for a lot of them, they do favours in order to get a favour back. The relationship with my dad is he does lots for you and you do a bit for him. And now it's the tables have turned. And so a lot of people are like, well, we'll see Tony later, you know, one day or whatever. So it starts to become quite lonely. You don't get the visitors to the house you once did. You start to rely on the same people, which tend to be family. A lot of my dad's friends don't help. The idea of some of these villainy types, they're going to do this. They're going to take care of it. Well, they don't do any of that. They just make promises. And you start to realize you're kind of on your own, really. And it's only been a year or two and all of a sudden my sister's not going on visits. She's got a horse show on a Sunday. My brother doesn't want to go. He's older. He probably doesn't like going because I think there's a lot of stigma at his age. All his school friends knew about this. Was a, mine didn't. I went to school in a different area and I kept it all to myself. So he, he kind of faced the stigma more than I did. With me, it was just keeping things to myself. So so gradually we just start to struggle through this mm-hmm. sentence and it's apparent that we're really not going to make it as a family. And the my mum and dad's relationship that crumbles and they end up divorcing and alongside that we're in a house that really a landlord's trying to evict us, the phone's been cut off, the car no longer runs, and in the end my mum's brother step in and say, Look, we've got this house and you can rent it off us. So we go back and start again. Mum and Dad divorce and for the last couple of years of his sentence I don't see him.
1: Serving his ten year sentence, which in reality was six and a half or yeah. thereabouts, and towards the end he finds himself at Sudbury Prison, which is an open prison in South Derbyshire. Yeah. Where, no doubt, he convinced the education departments in the prison that... Because he is an artist, and you were an yeah. artist, very arty, aren't you? From And worked as a, in the art world. And he'd met somebody, presumably in prison, that had got access to these plates that you could print counterfeit the dollars on. dollars, yeah. So that was all rumbling along while he was serving his sentence. And then towards the end he starts to sort of activate the idea. The people before had done this
2: quite well. He thought I can improve on this. He was a very good copyist as an artist. I think he thought I can improve this, improve the inks, improve the papers. But once we've got these dollars, I can distribute them like no one else can. I have all these contacts from when I was in business, but now all these contacts I've made in the years inside and a lot of international contacts, I can really do this on a big scale. So I suppose that's inspiring. When you're inside, and whatever you're going to do when you get out, it's massive and on a large scale. It's very motivating to think, God, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be incredible. Because if you're just going out just to a, the hope of a job and a, and a bed sit, that's quite depressing and unmotivating. So I think he was quite inspired for, for that time when he would get out. So like I said, from day one, he had that energy about him. He was busy and he had too
1: much to do. And I think if we could ever, which we won't be able to, look at his prison file at Sudbury, I'm sure there'll be comments on there saying Tony Spencer's coming to the end of his sentence, is applying himself and he's an accomplished artist and mm. art might be a way... Because a lot of prisoners paint, don't they? Yeah. Make a living afterwards, and even when they're inside. But deep down, he was getting paper sent in under the noses of the prison system to analyse and examine the paper to see what yeah. will be suitable for later For So there's obviously sitting. a
2: relationship between the prison and the police because the day he's released there's an operation on him as soon as he gets out so he hasn't been that subtle about it or people have talked but right from the off he has a police surveillance operation team on him they must have a good idea of what he's, he's doing when he does get out
1: But he'd used his time like experimenting with colours of inks as well as no doubt painting pictures to show that he is doing it. But the underbelly is, I'm experimenting, ready for when I'm out, and the big operation starts, and we're counterfeiting money. So it was sort of under the nose of the prison system who was actually doing this. It was very short-shank redemption-like, yeah. Which people, when they hear this, would be amazed, wouldn't they, that this sort of planning... This sort of dedication and
2: this discipline, yeah. It's quite it's quite surprising it goes on, but he always used to think that sort of way. He, didn't, he wasn't, didn't really live in the past, it was always today, and today is all about the future, and he was always very intense and focused on that.
1: So it's quite ironic, really, isn't it? He's sent as a punishment to prison when he's using his time in prison to educate himself, get more contacts, to commit more crime when he came out. So yeah. it, it was, it's, it's sort of... I wouldn't say unbelievable, but it's sort of incredible, isn't it, that, that that system is to punish people when really it's connecting. It's like a business hub, yeah. if you're like your father.
2: Yeah. I'd like to learn that's really where you, you get your best contacts is when you're in prison. And the guys who never go to prison for whatever reason, their contacts are lacking or they're not tested. Because like in, in that prison environment, you get to know people in detail of what sort of character they are. So you know, can you trust them when you're out? Are these people who crumble under pressure or do they keep their mouth shut? So they're kind of all these little tests. It's almost everyone is doing exams in prison as well. And you get to know, well, well I can work with him and I can work with him, but you don't work with him. It's getting this network of people, but outside you wouldn't have got those people and you wouldn't have known them that intimately either.
1: So when, going back to how we started when you were a very young child, you were fed the story that you'd gone to college. In reality, he had a crime college. Yeah, I think for
2: him that's the way he saw it. That's where you, in prison what you do is you educate yourself. Because he wouldn't take a job when he was in prison. He always made sure he was on education. I think he saw a job as quite meaningless because you're not growing, you're not improving. It was education, you are. And you connect with other prisoners who are also educating themselves and use their prison time in the same way. He'll eventually do six and a half years So that's pretty much most of my teenage years. So I didn't know what he was going to get released because initially you think one day when he comes out it's going to be like a big party and everything and everything's going to, it's going to be a great celebration. But when he comes out, I don't even know he's coming out. He just turns up on the doorstep one day, like in in an ill-fitting suit and he's like, all right there, as if nothing's happened. And then he just waltzes in and for us, our people are getting on and shoots off again. He's, He's got things to do and he's got over the road, he's got a driver and a car. He's got a lot to do, he's, you know, same old energy where he's got meetings. So Tony's released
0: in 1989, and as we've already heard, he's planning his next criminal activity. He's taken an interest in art and he's experimenting with different papers and different ink colours. But his art is going to be used in his next criminal activity and he's going to be counterfeiting millions of dollars. As he leaves prison, the police are on him already and within months, they raid his house and he subsequently goes on the run.
1: Whilst on the run, he meets Crystal, who we've
0: managed to trace, and she's agreed to be interviewed along with Jason. And I must give the listeners a warning that towards the end of this interview there is some colourful language, shall we say? So forewarned is forearmed. So we're here at the home of Crystal, and it's very nice of you to invite us into your home. You're and uh, and we're here to talk about. Your relationship with um, Tony, as we know him as Tony Spencer. How did you know him and when did you first meet him?
3: I met him um, through a friend, uh, well, say a friend. uh, There was a guy across the road, a neighbour, that always chatted to us as girls when we went in the pub. Bit of a jack, my lad, bit of a car dealer, bit of a. Always had a wad of money in his hands, you know, so it was not really our cup of tea. But he'd always, as soon as he's seen us, buys all the first drink. And this particular night when we went in, the same thing happened. And Tony was with him. And our eyes connected. And, and the pictures don't give Tony's eyes justice, they really don't. They was, you know, as blue as a sea, you could, you could melt into them. So there was a bit of a connection there straight away. And I went away, you know, thinking, oh, wow. Um... But then we, we had our girly night out, I went home, and, and that was it. And then I got a knock on the door from Brian, who lived across the road, and he says, you know, the guy I was with, is looking for somewhere around here to lodge just at weekends. OK. Is there any chance you can just put him up, he'll pay you? Well, my children, every other weekend, went to the grandparents for the weekend. So, yeah, and that's
0: really how it
3: started. He came as a lodger. So what year are we
0: talking about that you First met Tony.
3: It would be when he was on the run,
0: which I, I believe was 1989. Did you know him as Tony? Was he introduced to you as Tony?
3: He introduced himself to me um, as Pat McKenna.
0: What was his introduction? What was his backstory?
3: He came on a Friday night. He'd, he'd stop over. He'd go on a Saturday. He'd leave his money on the on the mantelpiece, and there wasn't, you know, apart from just general chit chat. You know, there, there was not. A lot of great conversation about our backgrounds or who we were initially, and then one night I'd, I'd gone out with the girls and I came in and he he, he was there and um, he made a play and <laughs> and it all it all sort of developed from there. So when I then got to know him a little bit better, he told me he was a, an accountant. Where
0: where did you think he was working?
3: I didn't even ask. And and you know that's not unusual for me. You mentioned maths, anything mathematical. And and I switch off, you know, because I'm just not interested in numbers at all. And so um, I'm more creative and more, I write books. I'm, you know, I'm more a word person. So I can't recall him ever saying whether he worked for a company, whether he worked for himself. He just said he was an accountant and I just accepted that. And he'd go off every morning in his pinstripe suit with his briefcase. And looking. Uh, Looking, looking like he was going to work mm. sounds quite naive doesn't it but you know there was no reason for me to believe anything different at that time you take people on face value and so he would go off to work he would come home at five six o'clock at night he'd have tea with us we'd watch telly he'd play with the kids for a bit um, you know once a week we'd have pop and crisps and video night and we were just a family the kids adored him
0: and at that time, he would be living with you as part of your family full time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. When did you first get the inclination that anything was not quite as it should be?
3: I didn't until he, he just didn't come home. I tried phoning and, um, and, and and nothing. And, you know, in these days, they'd call it ghosting. You know, he ghosted me. That It was just never heard nothing from him. You start to worry, and and, and and then the next day you don't hear again, and then the next day you don't hear again, and then you realise um, I've just been dumped, <laughs> you know. I've just... I had tears. I had, you know, my broken heart, because by then I'd really fell like a line-and-sinker. And then you get over it, and you get on with your life, and then I bumped into Brian again. And I says, oh, have you seen anything of your mate? And he says, don't you know? And I says, You know what? This he is in Winston Green Prison. Oh, just a shock, you know, and I realised that, that, you know, that's why I hadn't heard of him. It wasn't because he'd, he didn't fancy me anymore. It, it wasn't. Um... So the next day, I drove all the way over to Winston Green Prison, which is in a quite a horrible area. And you used to go across the road to like a community centre and get your number, and then you'd wait to be called over to the prison. And I went over to the prison and um, I said, I've come to see Pat McKenna. And they said, Pat McKenna? I said, yeah. And they said, have you got a visiting order? And I went, no. Not heard of him, but even if he is here, you know, you can't get in without a visiting order. This was totally, I'd, I'd never been to a prison in my life. So yeah, it's, it's an
0: alien situation yeah. that you found yourself yeah. in. How long are we talking from his non-arrival at home to finding out that Probably he was potentially in prison? Probably about three months. Quite yeah. some yeah. considerable time yeah. then. So how did you move forward, being as you hadn't got the visiting order and that's what you need to I, to be able to go for a prison visit? How did you move forward?
3: I then um, went and knocked on my neighbour's door, Brian, and I said I'd better wet home. Obviously, I've been to the prison, but they wouldn't let me in. What did I need to do? Because I ain't got a clue. And he, he told me to um, write to him. And, and it was that point that I think he told me his real name. So he knew his real name. So I wrote to him. I then got a a letter back from Tony. And he said the reason that he hadn't told me is that he didn't want me involved. He didn't want me to get my house searched. And all the lovey-dovey stuff was in there as well, which, you know, you get, and how he's missed me, etc. And then he, um, he told me to destroy the letter as soon as I'd read it. And he says he was not, he was not guilty of... He, he said in the letter what he was charged with. And, that and, was, and what was he charged with at that yeah, time? American, American dollars. Counterfeiting American dollars. Counterfeiting American dollars. And that it was a setup, up and, and all the usual stuff that, I guess, criminals say. Anyway, I couldn't destroy the letter. You know, it was, it was a love letter. <laughs> so I... Yeah, so then I started visiting him in prison, and he says, I've got a good case everything's looking good um and that, you know, um he's, he's innocent, it's a set up, please don't like him. And then I would visit. I'd visit every week and um I'd take my children sometimes and my daughter, my youngest daughter, sat on his knee one day and, and she says, Does my other daddy? and I said, Your other daddy, who who's your other daddy then? And and she, she pointed at Tony and and she says, "This my habitat day," and, and and from that, you know, and, and Tony liked that. You know, it was you could see like that. From that, my kids called him Dad.
0: You'd actually come round from the three months that he was away mm. to actually being part of a family, albeit that he was in prison and you and your children were yeah. were at home. Yeah,
3: I believed him, and and again, you know, when it, when I think about it now, you know, how many years later, um, how naive I must have been. You know, but then I'd never met criminals. I'd never, I, I didn't know their pattern of behaviour or, you know, that they all say they're innocent or anything like that. My family, there's nobody in my family that was a criminal. But going a step back to the court case, the first time I went, my friend came with me. And I don't know the you've been to Court, it's like a goldfish bowl. Right. And we were sat in the cafe um, waiting for his case to be called. And all of a sudden I said to my friend, oh my goodness, what's going on there? And like about 30, 40, 50, I don't know, armed police come in. And, you know, it was like, oh gosh, this is a bit juicy. You know, what, what's happening? And then Tony's name got called over the tunnel system to go to court, whatever number it was. So we went and all these armed officers almost pushed us out of the way to get into the court. And I went, me what's going on here? And one of them turned around and said, we're expecting an helicopter on the roof. And it was at that point that I thought, this is bigger than I'm being told. You don't get this for somebody who's just counterfeited a couple of hundred pounds worth of American dollars, you know. After It that, was scary, but it was always also a little bit exciting, if I'm
0: honest, Do you know. It's yeah. the unknown, isn't yes. it? It's yeah. that, yeah, I can, I can mm, understand that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of been... On the brink of just doing something that's not quite the norm, mm. a
3: bit rebellious, I think. Yeah, yeah. rebellious. That's mm. that's a yeah.
0: good way of, mm. of describing it.
3: It came to trial. It was at um, Wolverhampton Crown Court. I, I thought we'd have done within three days. I didn't think it'd go on for months. I don't. It seemed to go on for months. I mean, I don't. I don't know whether you know but it was a, a long trial. Um, I would go occasionally to. To the court but he would never let me go into the court because what he said was I might need you as a witness and as a witness you can't go into the court sure but I'd, I'd, I'd pop and see him in the cells they'd let me go and see him in the cells Tony was not how you would imagine a criminal you know I talked about the, the guy I met him with the guy that lived across the road Brian you could tell he was a criminal you know he'd got lots of money he he was a charming manipulator, you know, the women were surrounding him, he he was a dodgy car dealer type guy, that's the only way I can... Tony was not, he was very sophisticated, he was very handsome, he was very smart, he was very eloquent, you know, he he, he wasn't what I would have pictured as a typical criminal at that time, you know.
0: Unbelievable. Mm, Absolutely. And I understand that eventually you got you were married?
3: Yeah. Well, I was there one day and his barristers, who would always chat with me, and, I, you know, after the court hearing, I'd say, How, how's it going? And they were really quite optimistic, and you know, about his, his case and filled me with optimism. Came out one day and they looked um, wiped out. They looked terrible. And uh, they come straight over and spoke to me and they said that Tony was on his own it got no legal representation anymore. Of course I said why and they said that they'd done an S Ester test, is it called? On a Ester d- test, is yeah. Is it on a document? Yeah. I didn't know what an Esther test was, I haven't got any idea and I had to ask. And they'd done an Esther test on a on something that leaves a it where it leaves an imprint underneath of what's been written on the page above. And there was something um criminating about that And when it had been brought in to Tony and his um, barristers, or whether his barristers had it, I don't know, Tony got it,
0: ripped it up and shoved it in his mouth. Just to confirm what the ESDA test is, if you wrote on your pad of paper now Mm. and tore that top sheet off, your note that you'd written, it would leave an impression on the page beneath. Mm. And the ESDA test is to read what that... Paper on top actually said, Yeah, and as you say, Tony had got this piece of evidence, this page that had been ESDA tested and screwed it up, screwed it up, and popped it in
3: his mouth, yeah,
0: popped it in his mouth,
3: Mm -hmm. yeah. And they said that they could no longer represent him because he'd, he'd done that in their presence or presence, or so he was then. Um, left to represent himself.
0: I understand he did represent himself. He did, yeah. For the, for the rest of the trial.
3: Yeah. How long was that? How long did he have to represent himself? Probably say if the trial was three months, the last month. It was the last third, say, of
0: the trial. So I would some, say, some, considerable, some mm. considerable time. Yeah. Did you at any point when he was representing himself, did you Go into the court, or did you no, remain outside? No.
3: Apart from that first time, I was never allowed in the court by Tony because he was all the time. He was going to be using me as a, a witness. Don't know what for yet, but you know, it might be that you was with me that night, and I, you know, I was said I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't lie in court. And he says, "No, no, no." You know, it, 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 you'll be asked to tell the truth.
0: Subsequently, he was found guilty of the counterfeiting of mm, American dollars. Mm. Um, What sentence did he receive?
3: Eleven and a half years, and he did eight, something like that, yeah. So I went down when he was sentenced, I I was allowed in the court, and then I went down to see him in the cells, and it was the
0: first time I saw him cry. And how did you feel about the outcome of the trial? Devastated. Absolutely devastated. What happened after the trial and during his sentence?
3: He said that he'd, he'd only have to do six years to wait for him.
0: Were you prepared to do
3: that? Yeah. Because? I loved him. Because he was, my my experience with Tony was he was a kind, generous, caring man at that time. Either he wasn't and it was faked or he changed.
0: So he stopped becoming the person that that you'd met Mm. and the person that you'd fallen in love with? Yeah.
3: Not, not for a while, but eventually, which is why I divorced him. I married him in prison and I divorced him in prison. I married him in Whitemore prison in in Cambridgeshire, that area. He'd probably been in prison about two years. And I married him in prison then. Um, and it was lovely, I, I wore a wedding dress, my parents come along. My children came along. My son was allowed to take his keyboard. He'd had a keyboard for Christmas, and he was really good at it. And he, he played "Here Comes the Bride," you know, and it was
0: just really, really nice. Well,
3: as nice as it as nice as it nice could, as it, be yes, yes. yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And and what happened thereafter when you were presumably still visiting him in prison after your marriage?
3: I visited him in, in White and then he started to ask me if I'd bring um, cannabis in and um, little bits, and I did. He told me that, you know, if I got caught, it'd just be a telling off. You get to know girls, or the girls visiting people there, sure. and I'd got this little bit of cannabis. But I was naive about drugs as well. I'd never used drugs. I'd never mixed with drug users. And so I, I, he told me that you'll be okay, and, you know, if you get caught with that small amount, you'll just get a telling off. I used to talk to these girls, you know, when we were waiting outside to go to the prison. And one girl was missing one day, and I said, "Where's well, such and such?" And I can't remember her name now. And and um, she said, "She she was in prison." I said, "She's joking. What for? Taking drugs into prison?" And I would got, you know, only a little bit, but you know, um, I mean, I wouldn't even know. Probably about. I mean, I I have seen drugs now, so probably about um. What was worth probably, nowadays, about 30, 40 quid, something yeah. like that. So I immediately um, got rid, went to, went to the toilet and got rid. And the, there was a table, officers on, and I just happened to look down as the diaries were waiting to go through security, and it says, if um, Mrs Spencer visits today, inform security. Really? Mm.
0: But I'd got rid. And I went in, and I played Marielle. So was that a turning point for you then? Yeah, yeah, a
3: little bit. So my visits got a little bit less frequent. I'd say this was probably four four years into his sentence, so maybe got a little less frequent, but then he'd, he'd pull me back in with his charm and, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to go straight, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, you know, I've, I've messed up my life and I'm not going to mess this up and and all this. And he'd pull me back in with things like that. But I was... I was a little bit more um, astute then. Although I was pulled in with his charm, I was on my guard. I do know that he got a job cleaning, after visitors, cleaning the um, toilets out, ladies and gents' toilets out. And I do know because he told me that he'd got other women, wives of his friends, that were braver than me, obviously, (laughs) taking in nine bars and putting them in the sanitary. You know where you put your sanitary the machines on the wall, that you yeah. sanitary and dropping nine bars in there.
0: Mm. So, so putting bars of cannabis yeah. into um, into the toilet area. Into the sanitary machine. Into the know, where people machine. put
3: soiled sanitary
0: for collection later when he cleaned, yeah. And Tony was cleaning. He had the toilets, job in the prison, yeah. Um, mm. And that was a way of getting drugs into prison. And the decision that you came to while he was still serving his his prison sentence, was that the marriage couldn't continue?
3: My decision then wasn't. I was just, um, I still loved him, but I was more observant, not knowing which way I was going to go, not knowing, you know, challenging myself. You know, part of me was, you know, come on, don't be so stupid. And then the other part was, no, 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 we'll we'll change when he gets out. You know, so there was that internal
0: challenge going on. That's an inner battle, isn't it? Thinking. yeah does it carry on like this mm, or or, yeah. or does it change? Yeah.
3: And then yeah. Um, he got kicked out of Ashwell for, for whatever reason. He was starting to have home leaves by that time. And the first home leave was absolutely lovely, really was lovely. Um, and the kids loved it. But then all of a sudden he was starting to invite people, dodgy men or men, you know, around to meetings. And it almost felt like, because I'm quite an independent woman and I'm, I'm no I'm no slave to the kitchen, you know, <laughs> never have been. I was almost like the little waitress, keeping everybody, you know, yeah. drinks and, and nibbles and, and they'd be there till... I'd go to bed sometimes, you know, because they were, they were, they were there till early hours of the morning... And so again, it was like, what's going on here? What's And I did ask him, and he says they were setting up a business, and it was something to do with optics. You know, on
0: on drinks bottles. Yeah, yeah.
3: That they were going to be making these um, optics. Are the best thing that you know, there's never been anything like it. And, and so I thought, all oh, right, that's okay then. You know, you get on with that. And I went to visit him. And he, he said, "My mate's coming along on the visit with you. Is that okay?" And and I said, sure, "Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Cause I know physician orders are limited. Kids weren't with me. And um, I sat and, and him and his mate was was talking quite quietly, you know. And I'm I'm fifty percent deaf, and so I'm trying to hear what they're saying. They were talking about drugs. And I says, "Drugs." And he says, "Yeah, yeah." He says, "Um, you know, this is what I'm going to do when we get out." And I just went, you're coming out and you're dealing in drugs. And he says, I'm going to be the middleman. The middleman never gets caught. Well, I weren't that naive. (laughs) And so I says, and what do I tell our kids that you're doing for a living? What do I tell my mum? What do I tell my dad? He says, fuck your kids, fuck your dad and fuck your mum. And I just went, no, actually, fuck you. And I walked out of the prison and I never went back.
0: That was was, was the end of your marriage? That was the end, yeah and I started divorce proceedings that week. Looking back, what's your thoughts about that period of your life?
3: I'm not bitter. You know, when you come out of a relationship, you can feel quite, a bad relationship, you can feel quite resentful and quite bitter and quite angry. Funny enough, with Tony, I never did and I never do. And I still missed him, still missed him, but I knew that I couldn't have my kids involved in that and involved in police raids and, you know, um, stuff like that. Many, many years later, I did a good clean out of my shed and I found, I think I found the plates for the dollars.
0: The ones that he would to create the counterfeit mm. dollars? Yeah.
3: I don't know because I don't know what they look like, but there were these big metal plates and, and they were engraved and I was too scared to put them in my bin. I was too scared. I didn't know what to do with them and I spoke to my friend who's husband's a lawyer and I asked him what to do and they told me to just go and take them down the police station. I took them down the Eaton Justice Centre, never heard anymore.
1: What's your view on Tony?
3: Me and, and Jason have, have got, we've, we've, we've had hours, haven't we, many of hours trying to analyse Tony. In fact I went into psychotherapy training to try and get an understanding of not just Tony but previous relationships. Um, people like Tony... Attract empaths, attract nurturing, motherly mums. And his mum was very, what um, will I attract? He's attracted to that type because I know, you know, from what I've heard, is that uh, Jason's mum's a very nurturing, loving, caring yeah. mum, isn't she? And, and, and I was. Tony's mum was very cold, very detached. Um, his dad was a bit of a, he was just not right. And I think children from that don't get their emotional needs met, that don't get that warm, loving, caring home, they have to get those needs met in some other way. Say, for example, money becomes their love interest, if that makes sense. You know, they feel good. And also the the admiration he got from everybody because of what he did, the, the kudos, um, that all fed, I think, what he didn't get from a very early age and that, that's you know it, it's hard to analyze somebody that you you know you care about you've had relationships with you even your own family your own children it's hard to do that when i was with tony i wasn't an analyzing him
1: he is a fascinating character there's mm. no doubt about it
3: he'll never uh, be forgotten no it?
1: no he wouldn't and unfortunately he's not here no. for us to talk to him. and I promise yeah. he wouldn't talk to us anyway yeah. but uh, yeah it is fascinating isn't it
0: Sally it is yeah and it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you Crystal and uh, once again I thank you for allowing both of us to come into your home and uh, to talk about that period of your life with Tony
3: you're welcome
0: and I think that little dog wants to come in <laughs> <laughs> Well we had a good chat with Crystal and she being so open and honest about her naivety and also the roller coaster ride that was life with Tony and he charmed her sufficiently for them to marry while he was in prison but then when he was coming towards release she gave him that ultimatum it's either me or the criminality and he chose the latter.
1: I mean, how many times have we seen it in our careers that a relationship has ups and downs, but people are so determined to commit crime like Tony was, that trumps all other issues, doesn't it? And in the end of the day, he chose criminality against his relationship, which some do change, but Tony was never going to change, was he?
0: No, and I think that's where Crystal's naivety also comes in, because she thinks that once she finds out that he's been locked up once and and then he carries on committing crime, that she can change him, she can pull him out of that, but clearly she can't.
1: No, and, and the more we hear about Tony, it's quite obvious that nobody, I don't think, would ever change him.
0: No, I think that's right. So when he is eventually released obviously he's not with crystal anymore so where does tony go from here and we asked jason what happened next in the old man's life after your dad came out of prison for serving his sentence for the counterfeiting of the american dollars how much of the 11 and a half years did he serve because he got nine for the counterfeiting two and a half for the perverting the course of justice he would
2: eventually do seven and a half which was more than what he'd initially told but he was always an optimistic in every, optimistic in everything. He'd say, oh, "I'll do five or six, it was seven and a half," which was long. It was a, it was a long toll that was. So but when he came out, I think he'd been like forty-six, which to me, I'm twenty-six at that time. Forty-six is old, I figure, at that age. And well, I it... expect him to be acting in an older fashion, and his crime days and maybe his business days are behind him because he's he's forty-six. So I seem to think forty-six is old, which it clearly isn't. But his forty-six is more like a twenty-six. Because when he comes out, he has this energy he always used to have. He just looks a bit older.
0: How does that manifest itself in his day-to-day life? Then? It's
2: still that thing he's always had where he doesn't sit still. And he always has his lists, which is always producing and marking and scrubbing things off and rewriting. He's always got plans. He's got meetings, which is trying to always organise in one area. But his mind's always obsessed with whatever he's doing. And the plans he's built up for all, the, all that time. At the time, I'm working in London, so I usually saw him on weekends. I'd come back and every weekend I'd notice a slight difference. So when he first came out, he'd have a car, but I didn't know where he was. But then when he'd come back one week, he took me to where he was living. And it was just a, it was an empty house, essentially. He had a room with a mattress in and he had access to the house and hardly any food, nothing there. But one thing he did have, he pulled the, one of the rungs from the stairs out and he had loads of cash in there. That was his base, which he rarely went to, but that was his base, that was his... Uh, And he had other little rooms dotted around the city. You'd just go rent a room and he might sleep there one night. But he'd got in the habit where he didn't sleep in one place more than two nights running. Because I think he was always anticipating being watched. Even though at that time I thought he was doing cigarettes. And he always had his phones. That's the other thing. It was kind of money in phones. And his phones would always be going.
0: And by now we're into mobile phones, aren't we? Yeah, mobile phones is the new thing, yeah.
2: Most of them are quite bulky. But I think pay as you go might have just come in then. And he'd have, a, he'd have a few phones, he'd have two phones. And then a week later, he'd have a third phone. And what's that one? Well, that's for so-and-so who I speak to. He doesn't like to share his phone with somebody else. And then I realised he divides his calls into incoming and outcoming. Uh, that's a habit he'll always have. And so the, most of them were in the UK. They'll come on one one phone and they'll say, yeah, OK, I'll get them in touch with him. And then he'd go to the other phone and phone that person. But it meant that if someone was doing surveillance, they'd only have one phone. And then only have half a picture. So he was in this habit of dividing his phone calls up. And then he'd have a fourth and a fifth phone later. And they'd be for his international calls. So he'd have a phone that was for Holland and Spain. And sometimes he'd have one just for one guy in Spain. But all of a sudden you notice he starts carting all these phones around. And he has to have a certain bag so they can all slot in. And he's got his chargers. Because they don't hold the power that they later do. And at that point I'm working in London. I'm not anything to do. I just see what he's doing each week. I notice each week he's got a new car or a better car uh, or a different car or he's got a different driver. I do notice he stops driving. He's always got a driver after a while. And he reasons, well, it means I can make my phone calls because you can't make phone calls and drive. So he usually starts having a, a driver all the time.
1: So is it fair to say that his lifestyle was he'd thought it through and he'd learned it, lessons from his life and others, criminals and people? So he was moving around... Not staying anywhere, frequently. Yeah. So if anybody was watching, that the, it keep them guessing all the time. Yeah. His phones. He was thinking, well, if the police are monitoring my phones, I'll use different ones for different people, as he described. He change them frequently, I presume. Every
2: every few weeks, he'd change it change all of them. Usually, he'd cha- change them in one go. He'd get rid of all five phones, uh, and then just start a fresh. Get a fresh lot. And I his, wouldn't know about this at this time. This is something I would learn later.
1: And his vehicles, he'd swap those? His vehicles, it t-
2: it turned out he'd have vehicles for different areas. So say he was going somewhere and he wanted a fresh car, he'd park in one street and he'd have a vehicle a few streets away and he'd, he'd take a route round to that other vehicle so there was a break and he'd get off in the other vehicle and go on to this meeting and drive that for the rest of the day. When he finished with that, he'd always go to a different vehicle. He'd always have at least three so you weren't going back and forth. It's
1: like what you see on a spy film, isn't it? Like the Russians evading the... Security services, it's all at counter-surveillance all the time.
2: Yeah, and i this little struck network of places that aren't large, but they're all distinctive and different and safe. And they've always, they're always watched. So if anyone tries to ask questions in that area, you've got someone friendly and so say, someone's around They're asking questions about you, you know. They're always favourable people around. So he chooses his places quite carefully. So he'd
1: even got people looking out for him. Yeah, and the-
2: wherever he went, I would notice he would build up goodwill with somebody. It was always, if they had a problem, it'd make solve it for them. It could be just shortage of money or something, like can't send a kid on a school trip. Oh, there is some money. Just do that. And it just gets people's goodwill on on your side. And if people were a bit short, he'd give them six sleeves of cigarettes and just say, look, sell these. You make 20 quid on each one or whatever. Uh, and things like that, or just give them loads of bottles of wine or whiskey that he'd brought from...
1: So it was always something, just building up goodwill wherever he went. And it grown to such an extent, or was starting to grow, that he had drivers... Mainly so that he could just, like some executive in the back or front, whatever he's at, just making phone calls and arranging appointments and deals and God knows what. And, of course, he couldn't do that if he was driving. Yeah, the, the drivers just paid for themselves the way he, he reasoned it to me. It's
2: incredible because the turnover of phone calls, the phone's constantly going, and all the phone calls are about, like, 10 and 30 seconds each. That's so They're all short phone calls. There's no long conversations. It was always like... You know, I see you mate there in five minutes, have you got the such and such? Quite a bit of code there as well, I never used names on it, they were all pseudonyms. Um, and that just seems the, the way of trading in cigarettes.
1: So even if the police authorities, whoever, because customs would be possibly involved in those yeah. days, whoever was trying to catch him would find it really hard work because it was so disjointed and disguised. Yeah, there's so many codes
2: and cars and phones, you can just never get enough pieces to know what's really going on. You just get a little part picture, and that's the same with the workers as well. The drivers would only see a bit of what he was doing, they wouldn't see everything. Um, so if anyone left and there was any animosity, he would just change things in the areas that they knew about. But he was just very careful, drivers never knew too much. It was always codes, whether he was on the phone or off the phone, the codes continued.
3: So where
1: did he
2: venture into next to set up after his prison sentence? Well, he starts to generate a lot of money and he, has to find, so he starts buying up small businesses of old friends he's become reacquainted with. So he buys a wine bar, um, which he, he doesn't need a wine bar, and he, but he's going to transform it into a gay wine bar. Because he says there's great money in that, because the gay community have this disposable income. It's very high, and that's where the future is. So he buys this wine bar, and then he buys a taxi firm. Because um, occasionally they use taxes, and there's a taxi firm going, so he buys a taxi firm buys it cash and then there's a burger van by the taxi firm where he goes to have a burger and he thinks the amount of times I've come in here I might as well just buy the thing (laughs) so he buys the batch bar and then they've got another one and he buys that off them as well interestingly in that incident there was um because there's a lot of rivals between these these vans and I think he puts his van at a at a hot spot where someone tells him you better shift it because if you don't shift it I'm gonna have it burnt out and he says who who are you and he says, I'm so and so I know such and such he says, OK, I know such and such, I'll ring him now. And he got the guy on the phone, he says, right, you, that's Tony Spencer, you don't mess with him, he's having his van where he said he's having it,
1: and that was it. And what's the next big adventure, so he moves into big time? The container unit is what evolves from that, because some land comes becomes available,
2: and he thinks, well, I'll have that. Because it's near his taxi firm, and it's near these burger vans, and he thinks, I may as well have that. And he puts up a fence around it, like he did with the cookers in the old days. He puts some caravans on it, they're going to be his offices. And he starts buying container units and dropping them in and start hiring them out. And that becomes a business very quick. Within weeks, he's, he's set all this up. He's kind of flattened the land and everything and put all the stones down and off, wrought iron fences and barbed wire and got the caravans in. And it's just happened ever so fast. And that's where all his money's going. And for him, it's the ideal cover for this business he's now doing, which is cigarettes, but turns out to be drugs. Um, it's all hashish and amphetamine. But this container unit is the ideal cover because a lot of these units are to hide out to a lot of local rogues who are doing booze cruise runs and selling dodgy things. Some of them are straight, but some of them aren't. But it's a great cover because there's so many people coming and going. If you're a police officer, you wouldn't know who to watch. You think that's so-and-so. What's he doing here? And there's so-and-so. And and it's just a great cover. my dad's in these caravans and he's running this business. And it's all legitimate. There's just so many dodgy people involved.
1: So he sort of blinded what he was doing, like a scattergun effect, that there's so many pellets in the air yeah. that you, you don't know which one to go for. Yeah,
2: so you've <laughs> gone to the point where now he has cars, and you can see a lot of them, you just don't know which one he's going to choose, because there's, there's like dozens of cars, and you don't know what belongs to who, because there's that many people, some of them leaving cars, some of them, they just come and go all the time, and he has that many drivers by that point. So he might, he might, let's say, eight drivers, regulars, and then people coming and passing through, uh, but they're all driving different cars. And most of the cars aren't registered to the drivers anyway. So if you're a surveillance team watching, there's a lot of chaos there. And it's hard to follow because all these phones are also changing. There's so many code names and there's so many pieces. It's like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle where there's too much sky. You just, It's really hard to put together.
1: He's establishing himself now as the container depot, call it yeah. that, and smuggling presumably large quantities of yeah, cigarettes. Yeah,
2: imported in from the continent. I mean, he is bringing cigarettes in, but he's bringing in hash and amphetamine in. But they don't really go to the yard; they go near the yard. All the business is done in the yard, but they're all these—it's all offside, as he calls it. So it might it might be in some—he calls them warehouses, but it might be a lockup or somewhere. And as soon as they come in, within 24 hours, they're sold and they're gone. They don't just sit there, like on the shelf. They go very fast. So if he's got some coming in on the Monday, he'll spend days preparing for this to go out, because when it comes in, it's got to go fast. It can't be sitting around because it's a risk having it around. So that's what he does, he'll spend days prepping, get everyone geared up, get the advance payments, all the deals sorted, and then when it comes in, this is like a frenzy of energy and just chaos, everyone goes offside, gets distributed
1: all around the country, and then he goes back to his office and carries on his container unit as before. So were the drugs coming in the containers with the cigarettes, or how did it actually work?
2: They'd come in at a parcel, so they'd come in through Manchester or Liverpool or Dover, like in a lorry, and there'd be a little team of people and they would take it off the lorry and they'd take it to a warehouse of some sort, what he was calling a warehouse, and then he'd basically just say, right, so-and-so's got to go to Nottingham, so-and-so's got to go up to Newcastle, this one's got to go to Glasgow, and you'd send them out in lumps, like, you know, 10s, 20s, 30s, and you do it over like 24 hours, and it might be, say, 500 keys will go out, but they'll all go out within 24 hours all, all around the country, and then there's a pause because nothing happens because everyone's on credit. And then seven days, the seven-dayers start coming in. And then the 10-dayers and the 14-dayers. And the fast ones, are the cash payers, the ones who want the bottom price. It's a bit like a stock exchange. If you want the lowest price, say you'll pay cash day one and you get the lowest price. If you want 14 days, you're going to pay a lot more. So it's a bit like that. But that's what he does. He just organises these big shipments. They come in, they go all around the country. Then he collects the money and then he ships it over to Amsterdam and Spain to pay for the next load.
1: You mentioned keys, which will be kilos. Yeah, yeah. He's dealing in huge quantities of cigarettes and drugs. Yeah, yeah. And distribution network. And you mentioned the canals because he was moving it, some of it on canals and, and hiding it on canal banks.
2: Yeah, they'd hide it in the boat. They'd stash it at certain points. Uh, so there'd be a few of them on the boats and there'd be the lookouts on the bridges. Uh, and then they'd do the mixes sometimes on the boats, which is why eventually they'd get rid of a boat because they think there's too much forensics on the boat. You need to get rid of the boat. So they'd just, like I said, he'd rather give it away than sell it. And then people just have to clean it up and take it. But that's what a lot of it was. he do he'd do the boats for a while. If he thought the surveillance was on, it was just change the pattern. Because if the people were too close, you just need to change everything. You can change your phones and your cars, but you need to change and be a bit unpredictable. So ironically, went on the canal boats, which are slow, but you can see everything coming.
1: And they're very often in isolated, and you're on the move, aren't you? Yeah. You know, you could be in one spot one day and be... 10 miles up the road the next yeah
2: and the thing is they just bury them everywhere and you can just change terrain constantly so he kind of liked that and then he switched back and go back to the container unit but then the container unit does start to get attention and there's one point where I I went up and he mentioned there was a camera opposite but he was sorting that out and what he did was he got some container units put them on top of each other with a crane and just blocked off the cameras so he was aware that the police were starting to watch him but as he said it doesn't matter if they're watching you that you know you I expect them to watch me because of who I am and what I've done before. But if they don't see me doing anything, they'll, after six weeks, they'll go. They have to find something to keep watching me. And if I'm just going to my caravan every day, making phone calls, what are they going to say? Tony goes to work
1: every day. Because he wasn't actually hands-on with anything, was he?
2: I think he would go hands-on. I think they used to do mixes and those, you know, when an amphetamine, and you've got to do a mix. There's part of them that probably wanted to do it because was an element of risk. But also he wouldn't ask someone to do something he wouldn't do himself. So he'd figure, well, no, I've got to take charge of this because at the end of the day, I'm the head. So uh, when he was doing that, it would be unpredictable right up to the last hour. No one would know where he was going to do the mix and he'd have four or five options. And at the last hour, he'd notify the two workers who were with him and say, right, well, it's going to be sort of like uh, the red place. Uh, he'd be there in 20 minutes. And that's what they'd do when they'd go do a mix. Everyone got the phones off. They'd do the mix and then they'd come out of there and then cut start distributing. There were the rare times when he went hands-on, but I think other people wouldn't do that.
1: So when you say a mix, for people who don't know what that means, what does what do that actually mean?
2: He would get the amphetamine in base from abroad, but then you've got to bulk it up and add powder to it, so like four kilos becomes eight kilos and things like baby formulas and very white powders they'd use. That's what they would do with the amphetamine. And that was quite profitable, the amphetamine. He, he, he called it his line, as he called it. And that's what he would do with the amphetamine. He would he would do the mix himself, like he was a chemist. And it was just, you know, put the gown on and the gloves, and he'd do all this sort of thing. But that was just very high risk, because the, the police come in and you're doing that, then what are you going
1: to say? So he really did put himself on a, a limit There's part of him that
2: seemed to like this
1: risk. And it was a... But he'd taken all the precautions behind the scene of you're
2: that clouding
1: the whole enterprise, if you like, by you know anti-surveillance, changing locations, talking in codes, choosing your staff very carefully, yeah, giving them a code word red, you said, which would would mean a location that they'd be. Aware yeah, everyone,
2: you unless you're, in the little circle, only the people in the circle knew what the codes were, and if something dramatic happened elsewhere, where some people were compromised or they had a raid, most of the code names had to change because some of their drivers might know the code's being used, And so you just change them all over again. And also, if any drivers had left, you wouldn't want them knowing the codes and telling the police what the code... So you, the codes would constantly change, just as the phones and the cars did. I mean, a mammoth enterprise... <laughs> it's obsessive. I mean, it must, it,
1: I mean it, his brain must be working like a computer to control all You've got this. You've to
0: have one hell of a memory as well. Yeah, it? yeah. And I mean, that's
1: the funny thing with the memory, because occasionally things would get forgotten,
2: and it'd be like, I had 20 kilos of this the other way, I buried it on the bank, I can't find it. We've been up and down and up and down there was a, there was one instance where it'd buried there' would something been buried over in France in a wood uh, one of the workers had buried it, and they'd come over and then they went back a few weeks later and a massive hurricane had gone through the region and it uprooted trees and everything and every marker was gone and they couldn't find this stuff that had been buried so my dad he, he he'd actually bought a there's a dog trainer like a and he had all these dogs and he bought his business and he trained a dog to locate this particular drug and they went over and took the dog to try and find it but apparently the dog had been trained in the wrong drug, drug and they never found it and the thing just lay there just forgotten and, and just had to write it off
1: write it off and somebody could just stumble across it
2: yeah someone digging one day they, might say well what
1: the? what's yeah. this so he's clearly getting big time isn't he now in international yeah. level
2: yeah once he's been out a while he can travel so he's hopping to holland and spain quite often one thing he had that a lot of criminals didn't he had international contacts and I think that was the time in prison because he, he did connect with foreign prisoners quite easily because he found them interesting in what they were doing. He was always fascinated by crimes in different countries. He would do favours for them because they're in a different country. They'd appreciate someone who can do their legal work and help them out and it really goes a long way. So he, he did have a lot of international contacts, um, but especially in Holland, like the bikers
1: and down in Spain and the, a few the Colombians' links to the cartels. So back at his base, so to speak... Well, he always thought he was under the attention of the police, yeah. customs, whoever, surveillance units and God knows what. But it, that must have intensified because he was so active. They must have twigged who it probably was and set the stall out to try and catch him.
2: Yeah, they know he's up to something. And he knows the stepping up interest when a, one day a, a car goes over a, a speed bump and the tracker comes off. And the worker comes back saying, "What? What? this come off from my car. What a, it's a tracker. And then one day, two guys moved in next door to him. By this time, he's settled down with Blondie in, at the end of a mews. And he's got a large, like, like a five bedroom house. It's kind of a, a modern structure with gates so he can keep his cars off the road so the surveillance people can't put trackers on them. And he's got guard dogs there and cameras. But in the house right next door, two guys move in yeah, from Birmingham. And one day, there's a power cut. And these guys knock his door and say, Look, all well, the electric's gone. What's going on? Uh, he's got any candles? And they come in, and my dad sorts them out some candles, and they get chatting. And by coincidence, they know a few of the people he knows. They're kind of a bit dodgy, these good fellas. And they know a few things, and they're doing a bit of cigarettes themselves, a bit of wine and stuff. So there's some mutual interest. And they chat for a few hours until the electric comes on, and then they leave. And when they leave, my dad says to the others, undercover officers, you know straight away what they are. And from that point on, you think, oh, there's a real step up here. Surely... He shuts down and moves off, but he doesn't. He thinks, no, no. Well, I I know they're there. They know I'm here. I'm going to carry on what I'm doing. We're just going to be careful, and we're going to gradually move.
1: You know, kind of wait them out or move them on. He switched into sort of probably goading them now, thinking we'll just have a play with these guys. Well, the officers are trying to come into him, but this,
2: the little circle around my dad knows they're they're undercover officers, so they're all a bit uncomfortable about these guys even being around. They just want them just you know, just gone really. Um, this idea, my dad has this patience. Well, no, we'll wait them out. Uh, they have a tenancy. I'm going to work and get the tenancy ended. We'll, you know, they'll say that, you know, that the pipes need doing, it's not safe, the electrics, got, you're going to have to move on and get them out legally by doing that. But meanwhile, they're around and they're trying to sell my dad stuff and wanted to like leather jackets and he's got cigarette, but trying little things that he might be interested in, not business-wise, but gifts. So they try gifting him stuff and then asking him to do them favours. And then trying to do a look at, I suppose, a test purchase of some sort. Can you just get us, maybe, do you know anyone who can get us one kilo of this? It's not a lot, but, you know, this is what we're interested in. My dad's like, I I don't have anything to do with that. I do a container unit. But surely you know someone, Tony, and I'll see what I can do. It's almost an instinct. When anyone asks for a favour, he always says, I can see what I can do. Because usually... He can do anything. And even though these are undercover officers, he can't help that instinct of, yeah, I'll see what I can do. I'll try and fix you up. They just start coming closer and closer. Uh, but he knows exactly what they're doing. And he's watching every word and watching where they're going for case of planting bugs. And the caravan's becoming safe. And now he's watching the cars. But he's carrying on with business just as normal. Except some of the workers are really rattled by it. And some of them, they don't want to drive anymore. They're like, well, no, that's me done. Really, Lost the bottle. Yeah, this is... <laughs> This is, you should just tell them either what, we know who you are. So they go, or we just move off. But this, no, this isn't. And I thought, well, that, this can't be right either. I was of the same opinion. But he, he carries on goading them almost. Um, and then they reached a point where they want to do a deal. And he says to them, well, well tell me who you know then, where you been? And they give him some names of criminals over Birmingham way. And my dad checks them out. One of them's disappeared. And one of them's really, ooh, he's not sure about, you know, he knew them, but... He don't want to vouch for them and give, you know, say, it's on me if they turn out to be. So he says, you, you know, your references aren't any good. And at that point, they still want to do a deal. And they've got a pill machine to sell him. And he just keeps relentlessly going on with this. And at this point, I'm about to go to Thailand with my wife, who I've met. And before I go, he's, he's bought a caravan, a new one. And this is to have meetings just with these two officers. Because he says, well, they're not going to the other caravans. One of them's clean now. I don't want to damage that one by them coming in. So I've got this one. He said, we're going to, we're going to, we'll, we'll go in there and we'll do a search. Of, and he, this is what he later does. He kind of pats them all down and they pat him down. They go in the car and they talk. Uh, one of them's got a, a bug in their, in their boot, uh, as it will later find out. But even then, he, do, he sticks to the codes. They really don't get anything. And that's as far as they get. But what does happen is there are, there are bugs on the caravans. Then the, the surveillance team hear a big deal going down and some like 200,000, like 200 cigarettes. And they think, well, this is the time to go in. Except they don't realise this actually is cigarettes. And my dad knows it's cigarettes and he thinks they're listening. And so when this deal comes in, all the surveillance comes in, all the helicopters and all, all the police teams and everything, they all come in, but they only find cigarettes. And they arrest everybody, but they don't really have anything. And at that point, it's they have to start building a case around him. Uh, And that's what happened. They've just got to hold on tight to him and he's remanded. And they start building a case around him on all these scraps of intercepts and phone bugs and surveillance logs. And it has to be conspiracy because you haven't caught him with anything.
1: You know, when you say he he used to look for bugs in cars and caravans and whatever,
2: how did he do it? Well, he'd have sweeping devices. He'd entertained this idea years ago of uh, setting up as a private detective so you can go and buy all these gadgets and everything. And there'd be your cover. So he gets these sweepers and you sweep the caravans with them. So the police dilemma is they could have actually charged him with cigarettes. It might have been straightforward. But they know he's not been doing cigarettes. Yeah. So it's really frustrating. And they have all these scraps of evidence, but none of them, I think they have 300 hours of booked, uh, you know, out of the caravans. But he's he sticks to this code religiously and he never breaks it. It doesn't matter if he's in the bathroom, he never breaks the code ever. Does it matter? Whenever you speak to him, he never uses the correct words for anything. So
1: it's, it's a big frustration to correct this code. And of course the police have shown the hand now. They've executed warrants and arrested him and others and searched, looking for the drugs, when there probably wasn't any drugs to find anyway at that time.
2: Yeah, I think they'd come on to him three times before, and each time they'd had to back off because they couldn't get the evidence. So it could be a bit of impatience on their behalf that with a third time on this guy... And we still haven't got anything. This is as good as
1: it gets. We've got to go in. Turns out they've gone in too early. And then subsequently when, as we discussed on earlier occasions, the prosecution has got to show its case and they have to disclose that they had got bugs in there. They had got undercover police yeah. officers. And you mentioned one had got a bug in his shoe. Yeah. Because presumably
2: they had to tell you that. Because you're there, you can just calculate where where the answers have to be. For him to go in... The fact he had his shoes on, it had to be in the heel. It turns out it was. And there were various things like this by, you know, you just you just calculate w- what the answer has to be by what it couldn't be. And sure enough, when you get the paperwork, that's what it is. And to locate certain informants that have been cooperating with the police, you just narrow it down. You think, well, it can't be all these people. It has to be that one guy. And sure enough, it turns out that's the informant. The informant
1: was the night watchman on the yard. And subsequently, there was a, another long trial at again, I think this was,
2: Yeah, this was Birmingham. I think it was about five months. But he was delighted to get Birmingham because of the jury. Except the first jury, it was too white and too middle class. It wasn't a good jury. But fortunately, I think the prosecution made a mistake they disclosed as previous in the early stages and they had the option of starting again. And that's what they did. They said, well, well we're not doing with this because we'll appeal. So they had to start over. And the next jury was multicultural and it was younger. And it was a good jury. So they went with that jury. And they thought, this is a good one. We need to keep this one. So later on, when the prosecution disclosed this previous again, this time they didn't stop it. They thought, no, the jury's good. And we ought to roll with this and actually use it to our benefit. And so they started to say, well, look, Tony's a cigarette smuggler. He's a rogue. He's a bit of a villain, a bit of a past, as the prosecution have told you. But he's not a drug dealer. And it put the emphasis on the prosecution to say, well, you can prove he's a rogue quite easily. But can you prove he's a drug dealer? And that becomes the problem because... Everything is about cigarettes. All the phone calls are about cigarettes. All the witnesses are about cigarettes. There's a lack of drugs in the in the case. The only people who've got drugs are the people who aren't him. There might be the odd guy they've raided and he's got something, like a kilo of something. And the police officers, they're the only ones who really had any drugs, which they were trying to sell, and a pill machine they were trying to sell. But there's almost no drugs in the case.
1: So the undercovers that he thought were undercover police officers yeah. genuinely turned out, It
2: turned out there was five of them. Five? I think my dad identified three of them, but there were two on the fringes who didn't really do a lot, but they were floating around. They'd uh, rented container units. So they were there. So there was a lot of eyes there, but the main two were obvious right from the start. I would see them in the yard and I would say to them, they weren't even from around Nuneaton, they're from Birmingham. And they didn't have Birmingham accents and they didn't know anyone in our area. And there's a mystery why they were setting up in our area and they looked like they were performing. It was a bit too obvious. Uh, they were constantly on the phone, kind of mirroring how my dad would behave. Except there was a lack of activity to back it up. Uh, and there was too much show. A lot of the villains were a lot more understated; They were slightly overstated as well in what they did. Yeah, it's a bit of a giveaway, but he spotted it. I wouldn't
1: have spotted him on my own, but he spotted him straight away. As the trial progresses, again, it's frustrated the authorities in catching him. And when they've got him, he moves on to the next challenge to get off, doesn't he? Yeah, this Which is, is the next phase. game, yeah. Uh, he has two good barristers. Uh, which want
2: to eventually become a QC, is a real charming guy. Charlie Benson and Dermot Wright, an old veteran, it's a good combination. Uh, and their prosecution is, a, is quite a middle-class guy, or upper-class rather, but he has this accent which is quite aloof and it doesn't play very well because it's it's not like the jury aren't really used to people speaking like that. Or if they do, they like a bit of humour and there's a lack of humour there. And it's almost like a theatre, the cooks. I used to go some days And it was very much like a theatre. Who's got the best barristers? Who can charm the jury and who can connect with them? And there's a lack of humour to the prosecution and there isn't to the defence. And gradually there's a connection between the jurors and my dad because he's there every day and the defence box is right by the jury box and they see him every day. And he doesn't come across like a villain at all. He does come across as a rogue, but a very charming rogue. Um, And so that's what they start to believe. They think, well... Yeah, we accept he's a rogue and everything, but he's such a nice fella, and you haven't proved otherwise. And there was a frustration with the
1: prosecution that they can't. It doesn't matter what they throw, it just doesn't stick. Tony and his team at Defending take advantage of of what's happened just by pure luck, really, that they've got these... Yeah, it was a
2: fortunate twist. twist. The, the, the jury could get to know my dad from that point on, rather than being paranoid about his past that it might come out. Now he can be comfortable with his past and say... Yeah, he, he deals in cigarettes and it's, you know, what do you expect to do? You've heard he's an ex-bank robber, how's he supposed to earn a living? He's He's, he's got to do something.
0: I think it's kind of know your audience. And, and that happens in a lot of, not not just criminal cases, but it's all about knowing that the person or the people that you're talking to, Tony was obviously very good at knowing his audience, Yeah, that particular jury. And he was sat
1: right next to them as the... Yeah, that's but the court in question. He was under the nose virtually. They were watching him for five months or thereabouts every and the, day. And the funny
2: thing was, every day he had a guard behind him, which was the a guard from the prison. But the jury didn't know that. They thought he was a court, court guard. And my dad would talk to him because he got to know this guard very well over the months. And they looked like mates. And that was a strange thing that he got on with all these people around him. And if they say the guard turned up, you know, and he was ill or something, my dad would be asking how he was. And he had a co-accused on the case with a heart condition. And he would be asking how he was. And the jurors, it's not louder, it's very subtle, but the, the jurors notice these little details. And if you're drinking coffee and if you have milk or sugar, all these little, and if it's not right, are you bothered? And, you know, they notice all the little details and how clean you are and what you're wearing and are you flash or... Uh, they notice Arrogant. All, yeah, your manner. Is he arrogant? Mm. Is he likeable? Dripped by drip, day by day, they, they
1: think, well, he's really... Nicest fella. He doesn't look like a drug dealer at all. He just doesn't. Because behind the scenes, the jury wouldn't be aware as such. But there's quite a tight security issue, wasn't there? Thinking that he was such a big fish that he'd possibly be a, a an escape attempt. Yeah.
2: But as it's at Birmingham, there's like a dozen courtrooms, so you don't know which courtroom all this fuss outside is for. You'd think, well, what's, what else is going on? And because it's Birmingham, there is always something going on, so you can never connect what's going on outside to a specific case normally. There's nothing so high profile that will be on your television when you get home. So it n- never really got connected to my dad. Like I said, inside the courtroom, he'd have handcuffs right up until the jury came and they'd have to take him on the minute before. Um, but they'd always be off every single day, so they'd never know he was on remand. So it didn't prejudice the jury Yeah, because him. he said that's what they do sometimes. They try and, you know, your cuffs, they take them off just as the jury come in so they see the cuffs and once the jury's clocked out, they think, oh, he's on remand, he's, he's obviously guilty, some of them might think. And there's little little things like that that you've got to watch out for. And they can't get the impression that you're only man because of the way you dress. You don't want to go in a suit so you look like you're really tense about it. But you don't want to dress down so you look like you've been in prison. You've got to dress in the middle in a very modest way that they can relate to. But Mr Uh, Ordinary. I gave a a witness statement for him and I was on the... I actually gave evidence for him because there was an alibi he needed. And he'd popped to see me that time. He'd slipped off the surveillance and come to see me about something. And then they caught up with him later but didn't know where he'd gone. So I gave evidence and he was like, well, just make sure you don't wear anything loud or don't wear this and don't do this and make sure your hair's this. And all these little things to play with the jurors. And he says, when you give evidence, don't look at the prosecutor, look at the jury. They have to see that you're being honest and everything. So it was all these little things he'd learnt over the years to give good
1: evidence. The escape bit, was there ever going to be an escape attempt as the police perceived it? Because it, it had a very tight security he was away being, from the jewellery yeah
2: it, when he was being held at Woodhill Um, I would later find out that he'd been found with uh, some razor wire that you can cut it's like a real fine wire that you can cut through metal in he got it was found in his cell and from that point on they put him on double A-cat uh, but before that he was on A-cat anyway that's he'd,
1: an escape risk category yeah, isn't
2: it so on double A-cat he ended up On the wing with Charles Bronson, there was just him and Charles Bronson being held at Woodhill, who he didn't really like, to be honest, because Bronson was always playing up and messing up my dad's routine. So you're going out for breakfast before you go to court and Bronson's playing up, so you miss breakfast. And all these little things really niggled my dad because he thought, when you're inside, you're a model prisoner. You don't bully the guards or anything. And Bronson did those things, and my dad never liked him because of that, because he messed his day up. Messed his day up,
1: (laughs) yeah. So eventually the trial runs, and the jury go out to consider the verdict and come back and say. Yeah, they
2: they go out on the Monday, uh, because they could have sent them out on a Friday, but they wait to the Monday, and you have 20 minutes, and they're sent out. And we have a waiting game through through all that day, and nothing happens, uh, because you think if they come back quick, it's a guilty, because there's so much to digest. So by the second day, you think this is going quite well. They're obviously really thinking about this. Uh, We might get a verdict today. But you get nothing. And so by the third day, you're thinking, could this be like a hung jury? Or the judge says, well, I'll accept a majority like 11 to 1. And by the end of the day, we still haven't got anything. And then you go into the fourth day. And then he's, at the end of the day, he offers 10 to 2. They just want a verdict. And then you go into the fifth day and it looks absolutely hung jury. And at the Monday, there was loads of journalists all waiting and the and the public gallery, there's lots of people there. But by the Friday, everyone's kind of given up. The, the journalists right have up. given up. There's no great story here. He's not got a guilty. Because a not guilty is not a story. A guilty is a story. And they're all prepared for the, for the guilty. They've got footage of his house and everything and all the stuff that the police have given them. But by Friday, it looks like a waste of time. So all the journalists have gone bar one. Uh, the public gallery just keep going in and think, well, there's nothing happening here. There's no point coming in this courtroom. And friends and, who have visited have come and nothing's happening. They've all gone home. Uh, So on the Friday, the jurors, they actually ask, they have a few questions to ask and it pertains to the cigarettes that have came in and they make the connection between the numbers of the cigarettes and the numbers on the drug deal on the phone, uh, the bugged phone call. And once they see that, they they say to themselves, well, he's obviously, he's innocent on that. He was doing cigarettes. They come back 20 minutes later and say, not guilty. There's hardly anyone in the courtroom at that point. But dad stands up and cheers. He kind of just says, yes. And I'm currently kind of in the public gallery, and one of the few people who are. And we seem to have got the verdict, and the prosecution's just completely shaken by it. Dad just wants to get down, thank his briefs, thank the jury. Uh, he goes along the front of the jury box, shaking the hands. And the prosecution aren't happy because he's, you know, he's he shouldn't be behaving like this. There's certain procedures and everything. He's not obeying any of this. Uh, shakes the hand of his of his uh, lawyers. Wants to be released. Walks across the court to shake. The chief superintendent's hand holds out his hand and the superintendent pauses and then just shakes his head and just walks out of the court and all the detectives follow him. And my dad, very annoyed by that because he was like, you've just lost and, you know, like in a game and you didn't even shake my hand. You know? Not very sporting. No, he thought it was really unsporting. That, that was the one thing he was annoyed about that day. was, all this five months we've had this battle
1: and you've lost and you just, you're a bad loser. If the detective in charge had just shook his hand and said, well, Tony, you won today... Next time. Next time we might win. Yeah. And he dad would probably he, he, laughed he at that He would one. have respected that. <laughs> yeah.
2: He's got a sense of humour. and uh, But that's the way he seemed to view it. And then for the next few hours, they wouldn't let him out. They were trying to hold him on technicalities. Uh, but it, it seemed like sour grapes. So then afterwards, for the few hours, the jurors had gone over to the pub over the road from the Birmingham Crown Court. I think it was Yates's in those days. And rather than go home after the trial, I'm there. And they said, well, where's Tony? And I said, well, he's, he's going to come soon. And so all the jurors hang on because they want to meet this guy who'd been sitting next to you for five months and actually say, we believe this, or well done, congratulations. And all the jurors but one wait. And then about six o'clock, it's just getting dark and they've released him and he comes over and they all start buying drinks and he, he gets money over to buy around and he sits down, talks to them and, and he gets to know him a little bit. And one of them's got a, he owns a curry house on the Hagley Road, you know, that famous place for bolters, <laughs> And my dad says, oh no, well... As you've kind of just saved my life here, why why don't I just rent out your restaurant and we'll we'll have a party and we'll just have a get together. Bring your family, whoever you want to bring, as many people as you want, and we'll have a we'll just have a get together just a thank you for what you've done for me. And they all agree, I and mean, they all exchange phone numbers. And two weeks later, that's exactly what happens. There's a party at this restaurant. They all bring their families. I go along, and my family and my, my dad's blondie and all these other people go along, and. Uh, it's a great atmosphere my dad does a speech because they insist the jurors are all banging their glasses. They want a speech out of it and he delivers a speech and then they ask me to do a speech because they've seen me in the witness box. So I do a little speech and it's real merry and everything. That's it done and he goes back to rebuilding his life. Except a few weeks later we hear the jurors have been arrested, a few of them, and then all of them eventually get arrested and questioned because they believe jury tampering's been going on and that becomes, again, this plays into this Bad losers, you kind of lost, and you won't accept it. And now you're harassing the jurors because they gave the verdict you didn't want. So that did rumble along for a while, but no charges would be uh, would be pressed. But it was very bitter at the end because it was it was five
1: months, and the chief superintendent really wasn't happy with the verdict. I must admit, I've never known that no, scenario I happen. I mean, I'm ask you the obvious question: Was was that just a natural? Flow of the events, or was there any anything underlying?
2: It it was just it was just a natural flow. It was that generosity of helping people and doing something for it. I think for my dad, it would have been odd if he just said thank you very much and just went home. He would have thought, well, that's not very grateful, is it? They've just kind of you were just about to do ten years, and they've just saved you. Um, Well, what can you do to help them, and at least just acknowledge it? Uh, And I, I thought he felt he should do something, Um, and so for him, it was quite natural to do that. Um, I mean, I have to mention all the barristers and lawyers, they left Yates' pretty much
1: immediately. They could see what was developing. As he
2: started talking to the jurors, he thought, hold on a minute, we've got ethics considered, so we need to go. Uh, so they just disappeared, and I, thought, I did say to him, are you sure this is OK? Because I've never seen this before. And he says, no, he says, I'm free now. He said, they're free, they're no longer jurors, I'm no longer up on a case, so yeah, if we want to go for a party, we want to have a meal together, why shouldn't we? And you can't, I couldn't really argue with that, because it, it's,
1: technically it was right what he said. So after the celebrations are finished, he's walked away a free man to continue his journey on the next escapade.
0: Yeah, and that's an adventure and a half. But I'm afraid you're going to have to wait until the next episode to hear much more of this story. It'll be released a week
1: after this episode, so please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe to True Crime Investigators UK so you won't miss it
0: thanks of course go to jason wilson without his book the old man and me this series just wouldn't have been possible and we also say thanks to crystal for sharing her thoughts and recollections during this episode and also to a little dog for challenging our editors <laughs> our editors are angelica dabs and ed allen and our executive producers pete allen all from carrot cruncher media